Hey friends, welcome back to the Jay Curious Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Wells, and this is episode number nine. Thanks so much to all of you who listened to the last episode on forgiveness. Several of you commented on Facebook how much you admire Dr. Denise Taylor and her journey of forgiving her brother's murderer. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to please go back and check that out. I also want to thank the Forgiveness Project and the Restorative Justice Cornwall. They both shared uh, the episode on their Facebook pages, and I'm really appreciative of both of them. Okay, now I want to talk about today's guest. His name is Dr. Tony Eiden. And if you don't work in the medical or public health fields or don't happen to already be a friend or family member of his, you probably don't know who Dr. Eiden is. But you may have heard of his work. A few years back, Dr. Eiden started looking into the life expectancy of people living in Alameda County, where he was serving as the county health officer. What Dr. Eiden found was quite stunning. He discovered that your zip code might have more of an influence on how long you'll live than your actual genetic code. In other words, when everything else is equal, two people living in different neighborhoods less than a mile apart could have dramatically different life expectancy. At the time he released his findings, this was front page news. And since then, it's dramatically changed how we address health disparities all over the United States. Before I roll the interview, let me say a few things about Dr. Eiten's bio because it's really quite impressive. Dr. Eiten received his medical degree at Johns Hopkins Medical School and is board certified in both internal and preventive medicines. But wait, there's more. Dr. Eiten also holds a law degree and a master's in public health from the University of California, Berkeley, and is a member of the California Bar. Dr. Eiten served for seven years as the Alameda County Public Health Officer and the Health Director before becoming the Senior Vice President for Healthy Communities at the California Endowment. He now oversees a 10-year, multi-million dollar statewide commitment to build healthy communities and a healthy California. It doesn't say this in his bio, but I'm going to go ahead and add it right here. Dr. Eiten is one smart dude. Probably most of you don't think about public health that much or at all. So you're probably about ready to hit stop on this podcast. Trust me when I tell you, you'll want to hear what Dr. Eiten has to say. What he talks about, you've either experienced personally or you've witnessed in places you've lived. What he has to say might make you uncomfortable, and he's pretty okay with that. He hopes it will lead to a new dialogue to ultimately create healthier communities. I hope you enjoy this interview. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes or at soundcloud.com forward slash jcurious. And please leave me a comment at my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash jcurious. Thanks for tuning in. Now, episode number nine and Dr. Tony Eiden. Thanks very much for coming and joining me quickly here. We're at a health conference in San Luis Obispo, and, and you just gave a talk um, about healthy communities in California, but as well as the rest of the United States. And you, your talk was powerful and very thought-provoking, and I thought it would be nice to be able to get a chance to ask you some questions that um, that you know the audience might enjoy. So, um, you you talked a lot about uh, zip code and being more important than the genetic code. And in your medical career, it took a little while before you got to that understanding, but you had an experience. Um, kind of at the beginning of your medical career or medical school, and maybe you can talk about you coming here to the United States and and uh, and what you saw. Sure, um, it's great to be here. Um, 
probably the easiest way to describe this is to describe a little bit about how I grew up. I grew up in Montreal, Canada in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, you know, Canada is a, is a country that invests pretty heavily in its people. It's got universal health care. It's got a universal child care benefit. It's got highly subsidized post-secondary education. I, I went to, you know, one of Canada's best universities basically for free. Um, it's It was a wonderful place to grow up. In Montreal in the 70s hosted the Olympic Games, and I was there when Nadia Comaneci had her perfect 10 perfect in gymnastics. 10, sure. um, and so when I was 22, I decided I wanted an adventure, and I wanted to go to medical school, but I wanted to do it somewhere different, somewhere new. And I chose Johns Hopkins Medical School because I was told it was the best medical school in the world. And in fact, they have a saying in Hopkins, which is, we may not be the best, but there's nobody better. <laughs> and um, so I, I went there, elated to have been accepted there, and, and got to Baltimore and, and literally walked through the doors of the medical center into the community and was confronted by East Baltimore, which is... I came to understand later one of the worst slums in in the United States and and as I was being toured around there literally my first day there um, by one of the upperclassmen um, I was shocked and he noticed the look of shock on my face and he said to me what's what's wrong and I I stammered I said when was there a war here and he looked at me with this look of total disdain, like I was an idiot, and said, what did you expect? It's the inner city. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm in a completely different world. I, I'm supposed to expect this, these kinds of conditions. And, and I had grown up in Canada. I had never seen anything like that. It was, a, it was a moment in my life that radically changed my life trajectory. And I, you know, I didn't, I, I had gone to medical school to become a neurosurgeon. I was very interested in neuroscience. I'd studied neurophysiology in college. And um, I was learning um, medicine and neuroscience at Johns Hopkins and, you know, feeling like I was on a trajectory there. But I was being just triggered by what was happening immediately outside the walls of the fortress of Johns Hopkins. And did you find anybody who was sympathetic to the idea of what happened, what's going on here? Like that, this was shocking to you, but it wasn't shocking to everybody else around you. Yeah, there was this uh, kind of a lack of concern about, you know, what was happening out in the streets. And in Baltimore, this was during the 1980s. So this was at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, the height of the crack cocaine epidemic. Um, you know, there were, were sort of changes in how places were being policed. So there was a much greater degree of militarization in the police force. There were helicopters overhead, you know, at night that would shine spotlights down on you. Um so, you know, people kind of were taking that in stride, and I couldn't take it in stride. For me, it was this was really bizarre. It was Orwellian, and I couldn't understand why people thought that um, individuals living, particularly children living in those kinds of environments, could possibly be healthy. Um, the the stressors that they had to face, the violence that they had to witness, the lack of fundamental resources like good schools and and you know, jobs for their parents and transportation and parks, none of that was there. And so it reminded me of, at the time, it was the 80s, it reminded me of Beirut or, you know, maybe, you know, Soweto in South Africa. I mean, it, it just struck me that this didn't seem like the way a first world 
country should organize its resources. And so how did that change your trajectory into the medical field? Well, as I said, I wanted to become a neurosurgeon, but I became more and more interested in sort of like social policy. And uh, I was in Baltimore and down the street from Washington, D.C., so I managed to finagle an internship uh, on Ted Kennedy's Senate Committee, the Health Subcommittee of Labor and Human Resources. And I worked down there while I was in medical school um, to try to just understand. I, I figured that I would waltz down to you know, D.C. and explain to people that they needed a universal health care, you know, system. And and when I got there, um, I met some very sophisticated lawyers, actually, um, who had been working on policy for a long time. And I started to understand the difference between policy and politics. And the difference is basically power. Um, the ideas about universal health care, universal child care, all of these kind of universal strategies were out there. It wasn't as if people didn't know about them. It was that there wasn't a willingness to implement them because of the lack of power amongst the people who actually either wanted these things or would benefit uh, directly from them. And so, you know, one of the things that affected me was that I met a bunch of lawyers, and they seemed to be much more knowledgeable about policy than the doctors that I was working with at Johns Hopkins. And so it stimulated in me kind of a an interest in law. And ultimately, I, after I finished medicine and training, I, I went to law school and um, got involved in health policy. And so, yeah, when you went to law school, were you thinking that you would get out of uh, practicing medicine and go into policy change? Tell me how that changed for you. Well, I, I love practicing medicine. So I always imagined I would practice medicine, um, you know, at some level. But I, I was, I think, um, I was raised in an environment where we had the luxury of being able to pursue our interests. And um, I was interested in policy, so I, I said, I'm just going to study it. I mean, I'm just, I just want to know more about it. And, you know, I came out of law school at the time that Bill Clinton was first elected, and, and he was working on health care reform. So mm-hmm. I, and I literally landed right in the middle of that um, with a medical degree and a law degree and was able to get engaged in health policy um, in California and nationally uh, at a time when the whole nation was working on trying to uh, create a universal health care system. And what did, you, what did you discover at that time about our health care system and about health policy in the United States? Well, what was most shocking to me was uh, two things, really. One was that, you know, at the time he had a Democratic president in his first term who was committed to this issue as his most important domestic policy agenda. He had a Democratic Congress, both the Senate and the House uh, were democratically controlled. And you had uh, long-term leaders in Congress that had been committed to health care for, you know, for their entire careers. And so there was an expectation that this would happen at that time. This was 1992, 93, and 94. Um, but the other thing that struck me was that there was consensus in the private sector. Lee Iacocca at the time was the, the CEO of Chrysler, and he came up to Congress and testified that $1,500 out of every Chrysler uh, was just for the health care costs of his employees. And that, you know, Honda and Toyota didn't have those costs and therefore it was a competitive disadvantage to, you know, be making cars in America. Um, and there were others, you know, across the sort of the private sector space that felt that this, it was inevitable and something needed to change. So what I learned was that, um, one, is that the power of narrative uh, in shaping policy and the ability of 
uh, the health insurance industry. Uh, they created these ads called Harry and Louise, which were these two people, you know, sort of commiserating over the complexity of the of the Clinton's health care reform bill. Um, and they were able to sow doubt in the minds of the public, which, you know, killed a lot of the public will for uh, reform. But the other thing that, that struck me that was uh, really fascinating was that the Democrats went to war with each other over this policy. And because the Clintons had cooked this up literally in a 500-person private room in the East Wing of the White House, that uh, leaders of Congress really were offended by the administration trying to legislate from you know the executive branch. And, and so they actually rejected much of what was in uh, the Clinton health care bill. Um, so those are two big lessons that I think certainly the Obama administration learned. They didn't try to legislate from the White House. Um, but also, they also went around and cut deals, you know, with Obamacare early on with the uh, health insurance industry, with the uh, medical device manufacturers, with the pharmaceutical groups, with the insurance companies, with large employer groups. And they kind of cut out um, a lot of the things that I would have liked to have seen, you know, in sure. the original legislation. So that again is about how power uh, influences policy, and and so something like universal health care or or single payer or a uh, public option was basically cut out of the you know even the debate before um, health reform could really even get to the public. So I've heard you say that. You know, you're kind of a data geek. You love data mining, and, and you love what it can do. I think how you see it creating a foundation for policy change, perhaps. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your time as the health officer in Marin and what you discovered when Al- you— Alameda. Uh, Alameda, I apologize. Um, when, you dis- when you started looking into— uh, cause of death and death certificates and related to uh, place. Yeah. So, yes, I'm a total data geek, and I, I love numbers. And um, when I became the health officer for Alameda County, um, one of the jobs of the health officer is to be the registrar of all births and deaths. And there are about 20,000 births in Alameda County every year and about 10,000 deaths. And every death has a death certificate that would require the health officer's signature. So I, I literally used to say to people in Alameda County, you're not dead until I say you're dead because I, I'd have to sign the, the death certificate before the body could even be buried. But the did, death... anybody, did anybody ever argue back? with <laughs> Some families maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but so with 10,000 death certificates a year and, and literally about 40 years of data, we were able to do some really interesting analyses. And, and I knew that there was a story hidden in these death certificates that could be told and could help people understand sort of what actually drives health in the community. And, um, you know, every death certificate has what somebody died of, uh, the age they were when they died, their race, ethnicity, and where they lived. And you can take those four data elements and actually kind of tell a kind of compelling story about how death uh, plays itself out over time in a place. And so we did that. We looked at every neighborhood in Alameda County, and we calculated. Imagine your neighborhood, you know, having a sign, you know, instead of just, you know, the population and the elevation, it also told you the life expectancy. We calculated the life expectancy for every neighborhood in Alameda County. So there, there were neighborhoods where people could reliably expect to live to 80-plus years, and other neighborhoods where people you know, would live under 74 years. And and we also 
looked in the city of Oakland and found life expectancy differences between neighborhoods that were like, you know, just literally a couple miles away from each other that were more than 20 years. So let me ask you this. Before doing the, the data mining, did you have any idea of what you would find in the end? Like, did, did you expect to find these differences? Is that what kind of got you digging around? Well, I will say that I had a strong suspicion that there would be some pretty interesting patterns. Um, I will also say that I was a relatively new health officer, and and I wasn't really sure what my job was. So I was sort of creating this analysis because I thought that this would be relevant to what my job would be. And the folks that I was working with, I had uh, the nice thing about working in Alameda County is you've got Berkeley just down the street and and. People love living in the Bay Area. So we had these really well-trained epidemiologists, the people who study the sort of the, the patterns of disease. And they were from Harvard and Berkeley and Stanford. And, and when I presented to them this idea that we would do life expectancy down to the neighborhood level, they told me I was an idiot. I mean, they basically said, you can't do it. There's not enough numbers. That was the first thing that they challenged me for. And then the second thing they said is that this will look like a Christmas tree. There's no pattern. It's going to be randomly distributed. And I said, well, I've spent some time in some places that, you know, I think um, just the environmental conditions in those places will produce differences in life expectancy. So let's do it. So I made them do it. And I'll never forget the image of this Harvard-trained epidemiologist running down the hall carrying this map in her hand to show it to me to say, you'll never guess what we found. You'll never guess what we found. And I was like, I think I could probably guess. <laughs> and that that map ended up on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, it, and it triggered a, a, a documentary and a whole host of work around the country and other cities doing that same analysis, looking at life expectancy down to the neighborhood level and finding these dramatic differences uh, across relatively short uh, distances. Can you talk about why you think some of those differences are there or what you discovered about what are the differences in those neighborhoods and those zip codes? Well, first, you've got to understand two things about these neighborhoods. One is that they are bereft of literally all of the critical infrastructure that's necessary for people to pursue the American dream. So they have bad schools, poor housing, inadequate transportation, no access to health care. They have high rates of crime. They have no grocery stores, few parks, um, in some cases, not even safe drinking water. So literally every system is on life support in these places, and, and, and these neighborhoods conspire against people's well-being. The second thing you would understand is when people live in those environments, they naturally develop chronic stress because stress is basically the, it's the net of risk and resources. So if you've got a lot of risk, challenges that you're facing every day, but you've also got a lot of resources, then you tend not to be stressed because you can apply your resources to that risk. But if you've got a lot of risk and no resources, you don't have the ability to essentially apply anything against that stress. That stress just roils inside of you, and it actually it produces high rates of cortisol, which actually change your physiology. Low-income people in this country are physiologically different than high-income people, not because they were born that way, but because we made them that way. Uh, with our policies, or more often it's the absence of policy in the face of abject need. So their physiology is changing, and that, that physiology, that high level of cortisol that's circulating all the time, changes their behaviors as well, uh, makes them more likely to like um, 
fatty, salty, sugary food. It also, and this is more recent evidence, which is really incredible, it changes their genetic expression. Um, so if you put identical twins in radically different neighborhoods, their genes will express themselves differently. And there's some evidence that they'll pass those genes on to their children. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard there's even some research into looking at Holocaust survivors and their families and the genetics that have passed down from the trauma exactly. that was experienced and, and what uh, future generations, um, some of their uh, health outcomes might be because of what their uh, parents, parents and grandparents have, exactly. experienced. Yeah. Um, so it ends up on the front page of this data, um, ends up on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. And what's the outcome? What changes after that? What happens to you in your life and, and where you go with this? Well, it did change my life. I mean, it, it definitely radically changed my life trajectory. Um, and I think that part of that is uh, the, the fact that we developed a practice uh, in Alameda County and elsewhere that was really designed to sort of try to address some of these issues. It was designed to um, bring different disciplines together, people that were doing land use planning and uh, transportation and education together around a table to look at the health impacts of certain types of design, for instance, um, where you put your parks, um, where you had sidewalks to foster um, walkability and bikeability. Um, where you put uh, resources that you needed, like um, healthy food, sources of healthy food. Um, so all of those things have health implications, and planners in the past hadn't really brought those health implications to the table. So they really enjoyed having public health at the table to help them think about doing planning in a community. We also talked you know, with educators about some of the impacts of some of the zero-tolerance policies, uh, which shape the way that schools kind of uh, police uh, behavior in uh, amongst kids that are highly traumatized. And having those conversations with them about the social and emotional health of children changed the way that they started to think about their discipline policies and uh, allowed them to sort of de-escalate some of the punitive aspects of it and think more about the restorative aspects of it. So those were some of the things that started to change. I think that Another thing that started to change is you started to see the narrative change. And you see now, even in the presidential conversation, you heard Bernie Sanders talking about it. You heard Hillary Clinton talking about it. You heard President Obama talking about how zip code shouldn't be destiny. Mm -hmm. And um, that where you grow up uh, shapes a lot of your life chances. So speaking of the, the where you grow up, I imagine that the people in those communities where there's a lower life expectancy when they saw the front page of the paper, their reaction was probably, well, no duh. Thanks, thanks, Doc. We we kinda <laughs> knew this. And I'm and you know, I don't know that, but I'm curious if you had any conversations or if you heard from those communities and and what their expression of the narrative was and, and how they felt about you bringing some light to this. Well, I think it's generally mixed. I mean, people that um, are living this experience are facing a lot of stressors. They appreciate that being acknowledged. Um, they're like, finally, somebody understands what's happening to me. I thought it was just me. Um, some people, if you don't take it the next step and help people understand how to use this information to make change, then people can feel overwhelmed by it. And it just feels like just yet another thing that's conspiring against them. I think that the the other thing that's, that's important to, to know is that 
you know, when you live in a low-income community, most people look at these low-income communities and they think, okay, people are dying of violence, you know, homicide and, you know, HIV maybe. Um, in fact, that's a relatively small contribution to the difference in life expectancy. Most of what's killing people in low-income communities is heart disease, cancer, um, lower respiratory disease. Chronic illnesses. They're chronic illnesses that are exacerbated by chronic stress. So it's not, it's not that you're going to get shot, per se. It's that our society and our society's policies are as lethal as any knife or any gun by creating these stressful conditions that change your physiology and make you die prematurely mm -hmm. through stress. So in the talk you just gave, the keynote address, you used an analogy where a person asked about, well, what, what is the healthcare system? What are you as a doctor? What's your role in this? And you talked a little bit about fires in the community. I'm wondering if you could uh, speak to that and re replay that. Yeah. So. People often ask me, and I think that this is one of the challenges of this work, is that you end up with a lot of false dichotomies. People say, is it medicine or something else that makes us healthy? And the answer is that it's both, or in some cases, neither. Um, this notion that, you know, if you do upstream stuff, you don't have to do downstream stuff. You know, that old analogy that, you know... And by upstream, he's referring to prevention yeah, ideas. Yeah, let me give you the analogy. Yeah, sure. The old analogy is is the stream where, you you know, you come up to sort of a riverbed and you see babies floating down the river and you jump in and you grab the babies and you save their lives and you get them to the shore side and, and then you, 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 you feel comfortable and you look and you see that there are more babies coming down the stream and you think, oh my gosh. So you keep jumping in and then you get overwhelmed. There are too many babies for you to pull them all out of the stream. So you see somebody on the banks of the shore, and you say, can you go upstream and find out who's putting these babies in the water? Um, and that's what upstream work is. It's just trying to figure out what the source of the problem is. And so healthcare is like putting out fires. So I, I, I tell the story of you know walking into a community and finding fires burning. And the first thing you do is you grab a hose and you work with others to put out the fires. And then you know you feel good about yourself. You go, you high five, you drink a beer, like a Budweiser commercial, and you get up the next day and you go back to the community and there are fires burning in the same places. And, and you think, oh, that's weird. And you, so you grab a hose again, you put out the fires, and this time you don't high-five your buddies, you don't go out for the Budweiser, but you go home and you, and, and you go to sleep and you get up the next day and you come back and there are fires burning in the same places. And this time you're like, okay. As you're putting out the fires, you're thinking, what's causing these fires? So... Now you're thinking, not only do I have to put out the fires, but I have to go upstream and figure out what's causing these fires because I can't just keep putting out these fires. And healthcare is just putting out fires most of the time. And it's a $3 trillion uh, enterprise that is necessary but not sufficient. It's bankrupting us, and it's not making us healthier. So it's, it's putting out fires, and it's, it's fantastic, heroic work. Don't get me wrong. I do it. But I don't do it with an eye to thinking that this is going to make my society healthier. What's going to make my society healthier is investing in prevention upstream, which means getting more kids to graduate from high school, finding more meaningful jobs for people that have benefits, that have health care, that have child care, that have um, ways for people to pay for post-secondary education. Um, those core systems that all human beings need to be healthy are the systems that other developed countries invest in. They don't wait for people to become sick. They invest in those systems up front. 
And that's upstream work, is, is recognizing that every human being needs these basic pieces of social infrastructure to be able to pursue the American dream. And so we're going to invest in that infrastructure to reduce the likelihood that people will end up catching fire later on. So you mentioned that while you're in medical school, you had an internship, and and you found out some of the difference between politics and policy, and that there are a lot of good ideas around, some that have been around for a long time. So can you talk a little bit about racism and sexism and how that plays a role in preventing policy shifts and change towards the better? Yeah, so... Um, and I'm certainly not the only person to have ever thought this, but um, you, you have to ask yourself, why is the U.S. so different from other Western democracies that have developed um, so-called social compacts, which are, you know, if you go back in philosophy and look at Rousseau and Hume and all these people, they talk about the social compact, which is basically a set of agreements between the citizens and a government, which whereby the citizens give up some of their... Um, authority and freedoms in order for government to make policy and act in in the in the mutual benefit of society and those things are you know investing in health care investing in you know police forces fire agencies roads um, you know and in in many Western democracies includes you know investing in education and investing in sort of some of the human services that human beings need and so when I was up on Capitol Hill, I realized that there was a lot of good policy. It wasn't the absence of good policy that was creating the outcomes that I saw. It was the absence of good politics, meaning that there were people who had an interest in preventing some of these universal policies. And when you analyze what's happening there, you realize very quickly that what you're talking about is a narrative. A narrative in this country, um, there has been a historical narrative that is really about, you know, Horatio Alger, about pull yourself up by your bootstraps, individual responsibility or personal responsibility. And uh, that narrative means that, you know, government is should be small and people should be as free from government as possible, which is fine. Um, but it's not the only narrative. There's also a narrative of community responsibility and and equity and fairness, which is about people having equal opportunity to pursue this liberty that we also desire. And that equal opportunity uh, narrative is what leads to things like investments in universal health care or universal child care or subsidizing education for people. And so there's a battle between these narratives, one of kind of individual responsibility, which tends to favor uh, a narrative of exclusion. If people are not doing well, then the presumption is that it's their fault somehow. So they are blamed for their failures. Um, whereas the the narrative of, of, of opportunity talks about creating the environment that facilitates people being able to access opportunity. And that narrative tends to be much more inclusive. It tends to say we're all in this together. Everybody needs good parks. Everybody needs a decent grocery store. Everybody needs sidewalks or bike lanes. Everybody needs health care. So let's just invest in those things as we invest in policing and fire and military. 
and all those other kinds of things that society needs in order to be successful. Are we doing that? No, we are not doing that. We're losing this battle. I mean, in California, I think we're doing it a lot more than other parts of the country. I think California is leading the nation in this regard. But I think that we're so far behind the rest of the Western world. And, and, and the data is starting to suggest now, we, our life expectancy in the U.S. is 43rd in the world, and it's slipping. It's falling fast. And even white life expectancy against the rest of the world is 33rd in the world. And in 1990, there were only 17 countries that had higher life expectancy than U.S. whites. And today, there are 33 countries. So white life expectancy is plummeting, particularly for working class white Americans in this country. It's been an unprecedented decline in, in life expectancy and increase in mortality, which is driven by things like um, drug overdoses and suicides and, and, and poisonings. I mean, these are so-called deaths of despair. These are people who are struggling to see a, a future for themselves and are losing hope. So looking towards the future, do you see bright spots? What gives you hope? I see a lot of hope in California. I think California has turned the corner. California is reweaving a social compact. It's trying to rebuild that those basic building blocks that are necessary for people to, to be able to pursue opportunity. And um, California, as California goes, so goes the nation, we like to say. Um, when I go to the East Coast, I tell people that I'm from the future. I'm from California. <laughs> um, so th- I think that those are the, the bright spots for me. I see this in, in our daily life. I mean, we have 5 million new people insured in California uh, since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. That took work of a lot of people across the state who saw this as a priority. We have 250,000 undocumented children that are now getting Medi-Cal in California, which is unprecedented. We're pushing to get undocumented, all undocumented Californians eligible to purchase health insurance off the exchanges without any subsidies. We think that that's going to help you know, uh, thousands of undocumented people. We've worked with counties all throughout the state to get them to increase access to care for undocumented people and other people who fall through the cracks of our healthcare system. We've seen suspensions and expulsions decline precipitously in California, down 300,000 over the past three years, uh, which is huge um, and is a result of real work by real people to change policies. We've seen a million people in California now eligible to reclassify for uh, classify their former felonies as misdemeanors under Prop 47. You know, California is on the move. I mean, it, it really is it's not waiting around for Washington to get its act together, which may or may not ever happen. Um, California is showing that this can be done. And, and so there's a lot of hope uh, here in California. And I, I'm hopeful, you know, across the country, too, because I think there's some bright spots elsewhere. New York City is developing a Building Healthy Communities initiative, which is focused on looking at the environments across 12 different neighborhoods across the city of New York to try to increase access to healthy food, increase recreational space, and bring people together in ways that improve those neighborhoods. And that's that's a big lead example for the rest of the country, that you can't just sort of hope and pray that these things happen. You actually have to roll up your sleeves and do them. Tony, I appreciate your time. I know you've got a five-hour drive to get back home, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It was fun.
like to go with me down my dead end street? Would you like to come with me to village ghetto land? See the people lock their doors while robbers laugh and steal. Beggars watch and eat their meals from garbage cans.